the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back as we head into our third hour. It is a delight to welcome back into the studio. All my guests have been in studio today. It is a delight to welcome back in studio Rabbi Pinchas Alush as we're burning daylight towards the uh, beginning of the new year. It is an especial privilege to have him in studio with us. He is the um, host of the Rabbi Alush podcast, heard on Apple Podcasts. His last name is A L L O U. C-H-E. He is also the head rabbi at Congregation Beth Tefillah, T-E-F-I-L-L-A-H, on Shea Boulevard, where he says all are welcome, Jewish, non-Jewish, religious, not religious. Good to see you, Rabbi, on one of what must be your more busy days in the year. That's right, but it's a pleasure being here, as always, Seth. Well, it's a great way to uh, end the old year and start the new one. We should do a mutual shout-out to a fan we didn't know we had. You never know. Mm-hmm. But that's a particular officer, Christopher, with the Scottsdale Police Department. So we appreciate uh, his fandom, shall we say. That's right. His fandom and his service. Thank and his you service. So much. Absolutely his service. We love our uh, men and women in blue. All right. Well, we're heading into a Jewish holiday that isn't blue, isn't sad. And in fact... Um, that is the title of uh, your podcast this week. Before you say Happy New Year, think about this. We say Happy New Year, but maybe we should say something else. Yes, Rabbi? Right. We should add two words to that wish, and those two words are make it a Happy New Year, because happiness is not uh, just a blessing that falls on us from heaven. Happiness is something we work for. When we fulfill our purpose, as we've spoken about here so many times, we become happy. When we do good, we become happy. So happiness is very, very achievable if we make it a happy new year. Mm-hmm. Puts, puts, a, puts an interesting burden on us, and it's both an interpersonal burden in the way we relate to one another— but it's also a burden on our relationship with God, given all the kinds of prayers that are said during these, sometimes known as the high holidays, sometimes known as the days of awe. We are commanded to be happy. Talk about the command to be happy. Right. Uh, that's right. Uh, you know, happiness is, is not just, again, something that happens by chance, but it's actually a commandment. Uh, it is one of the great commandments of the Torah, in fact, uh, we see it mentioned multiple times uh, because there's great emphasis on happiness. It's not just uh, a choice, but it's a moral obliga- obligation. Uh, I know that you've quoted Dennis Prager, who's also on this uh, radio station, but uh, he often says that happiness is like the moral duty of having a good breath, a, a good odor of a breath. <laughs> That's just as we want to spread you know, good odor around us, so too. We want to spread good energy around us through happiness. When we are happy, it makes our surroundings happy, and therefore, in many ways, it is a moral obligation. We owe that to the society around us. But more than that, the commandment to be happy in the Torah as it is, I think speaks to something more profound, and that is that 
we are commanded to be agents of God in this world, of goodness, of kindness. Yes, sometimes we wake up in the morning and we're in a gloomy mood and we don't feel like doing anything. But that's not why God sent us to this world. God sent us to this world to do good. And by doing good, we become happy. So God says, do your job. Do, fulfill the reason for which I created you. And uh, when we become happy, when we do that and we become happy, then we're also fulfilling the, our very raison d'etre, as they say in French. It's a, um, it's, it's a serious issue the way you put it. It's a serious issue the way Dennis Prager uh, writes his book. And then you said something really interesting in your podcast, and I had to listen to it to make twice at least to make sure I heard it right. And then I had to think a lot about it, Rabbi. You said it's not difficult. I think some people might pick a bone on that issue. Yeah, you're right. And I thought about it before I you said So you that. thought over it too. <laughs> yes, yes, because I understand that for some people, happiness is not their natural default setting, mm-hmm. so to speak. Yeah. Uh, but it's not difficult simply for the reason that um, you can become happy just by smiling. Mm-hmm. You know, we think that Happiness has to somehow come from without. Mm -hmm. It comes from within. And what this really means is that when we do good, when we spread happiness, we might not be happy at that moment. Mm -hmm. But eventually, that spreading of happiness will make us happy. So what is not difficult is not necessarily that state of happiness, but it's what leads to it. What is not difficult is smiling at someone. What is not difficult is giving a dollar to a poor person. What is not difficult is helping a brother or a sister or, or just even a stranger with whatever he, he or she needs. That's not difficult. And it's not difficult, and therefore do it. And when you do it, I promise you, you'll become happy. You know, we have talked a lot around that theme in various uh, discussions of the past because it has been a longtime belief of mine that, and I think we've spoken about this issue too, it, it brings itself up again right now, which is that um, uh, thinking doesn't change uh, behavior. Behavior changes thinking. And this is a behavioralist concept. You can't think yourself into good action, but you can act your way into good thinking. And it sounds to me like you're doubling down on that a little bit here, too. That's right. That, that Absolutely. It's absolutely. A, yeah. Or in the words of the great sage Maimonides, who says that it is the actions that ignite the heart, not the heart that ignites actions. Yeah. Very often, we wait for this inspiration in order to do good. Maimonides would tell you, just do good, and you'll see the inspiration will come. Yeah. And that's something that we've spoken about, but maybe to put it on the lighter... In a lighter way, I would quote Arnold Palmer, who was once asked, how come you're so good at golf? And he said, I'm not good. I'm just lucky. And then he paused for a second. And he said, but it's funny because the harder I work, the luckier, the luckier I, I get. get. Yes. So it's a question of devoting ourselves indeed to action. And then once we do, the luck, the happiness, and all those good things will come along. Is it appropriate to have New Year's resolutions and or a version of a New Year's resolution. We go, and I'm going to get through these two very important prayers that take place over the high holidays or the days of awe. We go through litanies and lists of confessions and promises and and uh, beseechings. And I'm just wondering if around this time of year, people who celebrate the Jewish New Year 
are thinking, what will I resolve to do next year, as people often do in the latter weeks of December? Right. I, I think that's the wise thing to do. Maybe it's the most important thing to do. Because, look, you called it the high holidays, and indeed these are days of high where we fly to the heavens and we experience a, a true spiritual experience. But the big question of life, as we've also spoken about, is how is it translated? How is that experience translated thereafter? What comes out of it? If I flew to the heavens and I land back on earth exactly as the same person, maybe then my whole flight experience was not worthwhile. But the only way we can really translate this experience into a veritable action is by taking upon ourselves good resolution. Then heaven comes down on earth. Then our spiritual experience makes us spiritual not just as we're experiencing it, but also the day after. The issue of acting in happy ways or acting out happiness is for, of course, ourselves, but for others. And what's interesting to me in the examples you gave, the smile on your own face, but really it's to be directed at someone else. If you're living alone or if you're in isolation or you know, a hermit, a, a smile may have some physiological impact on you. But the point really is to get out and do things. I mean, these are this is a religion that is based on commandments, and commandments are action-oriented, right? So when you say it's about visiting the sick, or when you say it's about giving a dollar to charity or more if you can, when you say it's about doing these things, um, it's it's really about service to the other person. In fact, one might say the entire the entire edifice of all these obligations that Jews, particularly observant Jews, take upon themselves is really to act upon and for others, even the kinds of things that you do in your dress, shall we say, where you have items of clothing that remind you of the commandments or you uh, obey certain uh, laws with respect to how you groom yourself. It's about reminding you what you need to do, not for yourself, but for others. I wonder if, if, if as we go to break, you might pick up on that when we come sure. right back. Would that sure. be fair? Rabbi Pinchas Alush is my guest, host of the Rabbi Alush podcast, heard on Apple Podcasts, A-L-L-O-U-C-H-E, and we'll be right back. Well, you listen to that trumpet, it reminds you of the blowing of the shofar. We're going to get to that mm-hmm. in a moment, Rabbi Alush. Um, but yes, uh, even the obligations or the commandments that observant Jews take upon themselves is to remind them that, yes, of course, I would, I, I think, submit that it's about comporting yourself and minding your, uh, mind, minding your own P's and Q's, but it's really about going outside the house and how you act once you are outside the house or within the house and your family members, I suppose. It's right. about how you treat others. Exactly, and thus the emphasis, as you just mentioned, on, on action, on so yeah. much action. Yeah. But, you know, it, it connects, and it connects, I'm just reminded of a scientific experiment that many of your listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with that occurred years ago when they uh, split a class into two. One portion of the class had to stick pencils uh, into their mouths so that the cheeks would widen. And the other portion of the class had to stay the way they were. After a few minutes, or maybe even it was hours, I don't recall the exact details, but the portion of the class that had pencils in their mouths uh, that forced them, again, to not just widen the cheeks, but also to, to smile, which was the purpose of this experiment, 
had a mood that was lightened. Oh, really? That became a little more positive, okay. a little more joyous. Okay. To prove to us that if we just try, even if we don't really feel like it, if we just try to smile, eventually it will brighten not, not only someone else's day, but also our day personally. And, um, you know, I, I think that's really the perspective here of Judaism on life altogether. Today they say fake it until you make yeah, it. Yeah, right. That's another right? version of it. That's sure. another version of it. But I never liked that expression because when we're smiling, we're not faking it. Yeah. We're just expressing our deeper self. Yeah. Our deeper self does want to smile because we're in many ways divine. Our soul wants to do good. So we're not faking it. We're just aligning ourselves with our deeper self. So I wouldn't say fake it until you make it. I would say align it until you make it. Okay, align it until you make it. And I will say that, you know, having observed you over the several years that I have known you, whenever someone approaches you or you approach them, they can't do anything but smile. You you have a very happy countenance and a cheerful countenance, which helps probably explain not only your impact but your popularity. And uh, there's there's just something to be said from and about that words that come from the heart enter the heart, but they uh, and, and the, but they come from the heart if the heart is a happy one, exactly. Or they come more easily from the heart of exactly. And you know we we underestimate the power of of just a smile. Yeah, I'll t- I'll share with you something. A few years ago, I actually conducted this this social experiment also in my own classroom. I teach part time in uh, this Jewish day school, Pardes Jewish day school here in Scottsdale, Arizona. And I asked my students to write down the immediate emotions that came to mind when, if they could imagine someone approaching them with a big smile, with a loving face. And uh, the emotions that they wrote down on a piece of paper included emotions like happiness, like empowerment, confidence. Oh. Then I said, well, now imagine someone who's coming to you with a frown on his face and with this upset mood. And immediately the emotions were the opposite, despair, sadness, grief, anger. And I said to myself, well, you see the power you have on society? Mm-hmm. If you approach people with that smile, you'll evoke those good emotions in people. If not, you'll do the exact opposite. So we do underestimate the power of a smile. And it's, un- it's unfortunate because statistics show that children smile about 400 times a day. Adults smile about 10 times a day. Why? Why? It's beyond me. You know, it's it's it's. In, I'm just I'm just fascinated by that that study and 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 what you're saying. That study that you conducted, and your point about that, uh, the the notion that 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 the child smiles more than the adult. Perhaps there's the line in there and message in there. We need to be more childlike in 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 those respects. Mm-hmm. But I guess I'm also thinking about the kinds of the kinds of happiness. And you, it, it, it's a good segue to talk about the different kinds of, of, of happiness that you describe, the two different words for it, because there's, there's one that's more sincere and one that's more fleeting, right? right. And, and, and when you discuss it, the Hebrew words, what are they? Osher, which is more, more passive, and you kind of aren't expected to do anything. Maybe some, something happens to you. And then there is the more active which is uh, uh, which is simcha simcha so would you would you delineate those two for sure us? sure and maybe in English we have the same difference between you know I, I, yeah I wrote down a couple words of thoughts of joy on that. and happiness yeah. right 
But in Hebrew, osher is happiness that you feel. Yeah. Simcha is happiness that you do. And the difference between the two is happiness that I feel really depends entirely on outside circumstances. If I hear good news, I'll feel happy. If I win the lottery, I'll feel happy. But that, as you mentioned, is a passive form of happiness. There is yet another ha- form of happiness that is called simcha, and that's happiness that I do. If I visit the sick, I do happiness, and therefore I become happy. I do simcha. If I gain help the underprivileged, I become happy because I'm doing happy. That's a happiness that's entirely under our control. It's happiness that is dependent on us, and it's happiness that we are called to do each and every day as much as possible. You know, the other side of happiness is obviously or can be sadness or depression, and it's so interesting to me when you talk about the fleeting kind of happiness and you use the lottery as an example. There was a professor, I'm not sure if he's still around, over at University of Pennsylvania, Seligman, Martin Seligman, who wrote an article once talking about fleeting happiness. And his study, or the study he was talking about, had people who won the lottery and the the happiness they received receded within about a year. Within about a year, they were back to their set point. That's the word he used, the set point. But the other, the parallel to that, or the, or the other side of that was people that had traumatic injuries um, to them uh, from whether it was in a car accident or a military accident or some other kind of trauma, they also returned to their set point from their depression or sadness within about a year. You can, his point was, have a set point of contentment and happiness regardless of circumstances that may happen to you. Mm, Very well. That's very interesting. I never heard of that. And yeah, it's absolutely consistent with what we're speaking about. And I would say that the the takeaway from all of this is how do we ourselves define happiness for ourselves, for our families, for our friends and surroundings? If we will teach our children, say, that happiness will only come if you go to this vacation or if you win the lottery, right, or if you are waiting for that good grade in your exam, then you will have taught them that happiness is dependent on the outside and therefore fleeting and therefore maybe even never achievable. But if you will teach your children that happiness is entirely dependent on them and their good actions, then you will teach them that happiness is certainly achievable and happiness is therefore a moral obligation. I want to take the break and on the other side of it relate all of this to relationships, interpersonal and loving relationships based on a call I received yesterday. Uh, Rabbi, I'll share it with you in the audience when we come back and get your take on it there. Rabbi Pinchas Salush, Congregation Beth Tefillah, and the Rabbi Alush Podcast. We'll be right back. Rabbi Pinchas Salush is my guest. We're talking about happiness, particularly because we want to... um, we want to say make it a happy new year to those celebrating the Jewish New Year. Make it a happy new year, the two words he likes to add. Rabbi Alush, we were talking about the fleeting kinds of happiness, but also the fleeting kinds of depression, mm-hmm. things that may look to us as more permanent than they truly are. I had a caller yesterday, and he mentioned, David, you'll remember offhandedly, he said he was married 44 years, I believe it was. And I said, you know, I'm so consumed with marriage 
durability these days. Um, what was this? What's the secret of it? What's the secret of your 44 years? It's a good long marriage. Mm-hmm. And he said, we put God at the top of us. Mm. He said, we put God at the top of us. And you're talking about two kinds of happiness, passive and the kind that remains, Osher versus uh, 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 Simcha. And it seems to me that there are, as a theme of this show, when I talk about the permanent and the durable things which we seem to make more disposable and the things that are truly disposable that we try and hold as more important were kind of misprioritized as a society that way. Marriage is supposed to be a happy thing. A loving relationship is supposed to be a happy thing. And we sometimes lose sight of the permanence of that happiness because we put too much emphasis on the fleeting um, on the fleeting negatives, right? Mm-hmm. You have seen, no doubt, loving relationships and marriages break up over things that to you seem like small things because people have misprioritized. They have replaced the permanent for the fleeting on the sad side and reduced on the happiness side the permanent or the durable or the important simcha for something less than what it should be, probably because they don't have the larger view or the longer view. Right. Did I make any sense with what Uh, I said? No, it made a a lot of sense. And as you were speaking, I was thinking of maybe redefining those two words for happiness that we were speaking about, or those two types of happiness, happiness that we feel versus happiness that we do. Happiness that we feel really depends on outside circumstances, as we said, and what they can do for us. And therefore, that type of happiness maybe shouts the question of what life can do for me. Mm -hmm. The other type of happiness is happiness that we do, that we take in control of, and that we carry out to the world. And therefore, maybe that type of, the ha- of happiness shouts the question of what I can do for life, mm-hmm. for the world, mm-hmm. not what the world can do for me. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, you know, it connects to your caller and what he said yesterday, that that's the question that God asks of, uh, asks of us all the time. What can you do for this world? Mm-hmm. It's not about the world doing things for you. That's not the reason you were cre- for which you were created for the world to come and worship you or for the world to give you good news or for the world to announce to you that you just won the lottery. It's really about what you can do for this world. What is your purpose? Why were you indeed created? You know, your caller reminded me of what I sometimes do when, when couples come and, and seek counsel. And in this marriage counseling setting, I often have the husband and the wife sit next to each other. And then sometimes I would bring a third empty chair right next to them. And uh, when they start speaking, I say to them, okay, husband, this is what you think. Wife, this is what you think. Let's ask this third party that should be a part of your marriage. He's sitting right now in this chair, and I relate to it as God. Let's see what God thinks about this. (laughs) And usually the God perspective is not so much what I need or, you know, what the husband needs or what the wife needs, but it's really what's needed of them. Mm Mm-hmm. That's the question. That's the entirely uh, shifting perspective that this third chair creates in the room. I think it's important to add that chair not just to our relationships but to our own individual selves. Okay, this is what I think. What does God think I should do? What is needed of me, not just what do I need? And that will eventually create that second and more enduring and therefore real type of happiness. I've observed, I'm sure most people in this audience have observed, and I'm sure you have observed, uh, something that explains this at a very real level for people, I think, I'll try it and see if you agree, that the happiest people we know are the busiest people 
we know, and that you can't be happy if you're not selfless, and you won't be happy if you are selfish. And those that are inactive seem to be the most unhappy. There is, there is something about that, isn't there? Absolutely. Putting yourself first is the recipe for unhappiness. Putting others first is the recipe for happiness. That's right. Absolutely. That's what you're saying about that exactly. third chair, I think. Depends how you define work. Right. Because we can go to the extreme and quote what is engraved at the gates of Auschwitz. macht mm-hmm. frei. Yeah. Sure. As the work makes you, releases, sure. right, makes you free. But it depends what work. Let, Not let, that type let, of let's work. Let's say the kind of work that you choose <laughs> right. to do. Exactly. Yeah. And especially yeah. work that is other-oriented. Yeah. It certainly makes you very happy. Yeah. Visiting the morning on the eighth day, for example. Right. Very right. good. All right, when we come back, I want to talk to you about we shall ascribe holiness to this day. Rabbi Pinchas Solution, I'll be right back. A-L-L-O-U-C-H-E is how he spells his name. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Rabbi Pinchas Solution is my guest, A-L-L-O-U-C-H-E, host of the Rabbi Alush podcast on Apple Podcasts. Young David, is the music you're playing after the first segment, is it deliberate or was it just accidental that there's so many horns? This is all just uh, accidental. The reason I ask, that's great. The reason I ask so many horns, one of the markers of this holiday we're about to embark on is the blowing of a ram's horn known as a shofar. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know anyone who's – if you're a trumpet player, you have an easier time doing it. It's otherwise a hard thing and difficult thing to do. I've been asked to blow it a few times for for congregations here and there because of my old trumpet playing um, experience. But do you want to explain the meaning behind the blowing of the shofar? Right. There's a lot to it. There is. There's a lot to it, and we can go on and on. But it is indeed a central part of this uh, coming holiday of the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. Uh, we blow the shofar this year, by the way, we'll be blowing the shofar just on Sunday. That's we don't blow it on the Sabbath. Right. Usually we blow it on the first and on the second day of Rosh Hashanah this year, just on the second day. But the blowing of the shofar comes to symbolize uh, the blowing of the shofar that took place uh, in different parts of history. But first and foremost, on Mount Sinai, when God blew the shofar and we exclaimed, we will do and we will listen. Almost what we need to exclaim as we welcome the new year, God we are sitting on your chair of uh, judgment. We we promise you, we will do and we will listen to Again, you. Again, action year. first, we will do. That's Again. right. Right. Exactly. Right. Very well stated. Right. right. First action and then, and and then, then the learning, yeah. then right. an understanding because right. action trumps all. Um, the other side of the blowing of the shofar is because of uh, the horn itself. It reminds us of the binding of Isaac, the classic biblical story in which Abraham was told to go and sacrifice his son Isaac and thank God eventually God intervened and sent an angel to tell him no you don't have to anymore and instead of sacrificing his son he sacrificed a ram but that moment in which God said no no don't sacrifice your son was obviously a moment of compassion so in order to arouse God's compassion on this day of judgment we also blow from a horn that will hopefully remind him of that moment in history in which he was compassionate, and therefore he will decide, God will decide to become compassionate on this day too. There's a deeper reason, if I may, just one more. And that is now related not just to the horn itself, but to the sound of the horn. Sound of the horn, of the shofar, sounds a little like a baby crying, and it really refers to our inner baby crying, 
I end up baby saying, hey, you've deviated from your true divine path throughout the year once or twice or many more times. But it is time to pay attention to me. Please be the good person that you were born to be. Follow the divine calling that is speaking to you each and every day. That's what the shofar sounds like. And that's really uh, uh, the the commitment that we should have on this holy day of Rosh Hashanah. And and that is the Torah or Bible portion that you read about, isn't it? Uh, it, it you, you will read ultimately about the binding of Isaac, right. often mistranslated as the sacrifice. We say binding, mm-hmm. don't we? That's correct, the binding of Isaac, because thank God, as we know, the sacrifice never happened. Right. Uh, but it's 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 really one of the most stirring stories yeah. of the Bible, in which God tested Abraham, and uh, to go and and slaughter his son. And as we just mentioned, eventually that did not happen, and he slaughtered a ram instead of his son. But just that three day journey on the way yeah. to slaughtering his son on the mountain that God will eventually show him must have been a journey of just deep, very. Uh, devastating emotions, I would even say, for both father and son. Yet it was also a journey of deep bonding. Yeah, and deep faith. And deep faith. Because there's one teaching I stumbled upon that said there's a learning or a lesson that perhaps Abraham knew deep down God wouldn't ask him to complete the task at the very, very last minute. I don't know if that's something you agree with or abide by, but it is still a, a, a deep faith either way. It is. It, it, it is. It is. Um, it could be that Abraham knew or did not, though. What I really, what I, uh, in, I, I don't want to use the word enjoy, but mm-hmm. what I learned from the most is uh, the conversation that they had. Yeah. You see Isaac opening himself up. And by the way, this is the first recorded conversation between a parent and a child in the Torah, in the Bible. But Isaac opens himself up and he says to his father, 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 where are we going? I see that we have wood. I see that we're, it looks like we're going to sacrifice, but we don't have a sheep to sacrifice. We don't have an animal with us. But if you look carefully, you'll see that when Isaac calls his father, his father immediately responds with the classic Hebrew word of hineni, here I am. He says to his son, we might be going, or he's hinting to his son, we might be going to a place of peril. But know that I am with you fully, wholeheartedly. And I ask all parents out there, when was the last time you told your child who came when you came home from work and asked for uh, your help with his homework, say, and you said to your son, Hineni, here I am. When was the last son you said, uh, you, when was the last time you said to your child, I am here unreservedly for you. I'll put my phone away. I want deal with work at home. I'll sit down for dinner and be there and discuss with when was that last time? And here Abraham comes and tells us that even in times of peril, we must respond to our children with hineni, mm. with un- our unreserved and undivided attention. To be Isaac is another interesting perspective, too. If I'm, Is the name Isaac not mean laughter? <laughs> right. Kind of it interesting. Does. We've spent so much time talking about happiness in respect of a biblical portion of whose central character's name is Laughter. Mm. I kind of like that, especially when you talk about what you were saying earlier or you think about what you were saying earlier with how many times a child smiles versus an adult. Right. There's there's something 
there. I can't put my finger on it, but it's there. It is. It is. And Isaac was named Laughter because his mother, who was very old, laughed at the news that she will give birth to a child. Oh. She was too old. But lo and behold, of course, God, who creates miracles, uh, had her give birth to, to Isaac the year after that. And therefore, she called him Laughter oh. because she had laughed. But you are right. I think Isaac is called Laughter also to teach us. Isaac did not have such a smooth sailing no. life. <laughs> no. But uh, he was able to be completely anchored in God. And that is what created laughter, even in times of sadness. It's what created light, even in times of darkness. And yes, it's what created happiness, even in times where sadness knocked at the door. About a minute left, not even, Rabbi. But I'll just maybe let you say the last word about some of these prayers, like we shall ascribe holiness to this day in a town of Tokyo. It's a lot of fire and brimstone, but at the end, there's such hope because it says the severe decree that God gives can be averted through prayer and righteous action. Yes? That's correct. And we really believe, as mentioned, that God may be judging us on this day, Rosh Hashanah. It's not just the Jewish New Year, but it's called the Day of Judgment. But we also believe that the judge is our parent, and therefore he's compassionate, and therefore even the most terrible decrees can be transformed into decrees of good news, of happiness, and yes, of abundance in all areas. Wishing you a happy new year. Thank you to you and to your listeners too, Seth. It's always a pleasure being here. Shana Tova. Happy new year, and let's make it one. Let's make it a happy new year. Rabbi Pinchas Salush, thank you. Thank you. Portions of this show brought to you by the good people at Y-Refi. Y-Refi is a great um, great company in town based here, headquartered here locally, where if you are concerned about stock market volatility or inflation, they have an investment in a secure and collateralized portfolio that is not correlated to the stock market or the Federal Reserve. It's a portfolio where you know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no there are no fees in this investment, in this portfolio. And Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm where you can earn up to a 10.25% rate of return. That's right, a 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-34, 888-Y-REFI-34. This happiness business an issue, and happiness is a serious problem. It's opposites that we consume ourselves with, depression, loneliness. You can see the, um, the dr- dramatic parallels and the importance of both things. Uh, we had a guest <clears throat> in the studio a couple months ago that um, young David... And uh, someone else, who else? I think it was our other, uh, yeah, it was Mr. Bill. Young David and Mr. Bill were talking about how happy she seemed to be here. She just couldn't contain herself. We had her for a whole hour. And even during the commercial breaks, her smile, I think you were remarking on it, David. You said she was even smiling at you during her commercial breaks. And, boy, she's one of the most articulate people around. It reminded me of a line in George Eliot's Daniel Deronda where I, I think about you know how people encourage the world and how they encourage with their happiness about life generally. A happy person can encourage other people 
into happiness as well. In Daniel Deronda, George Eliot writes, excellence encourages one about life generally. It shows the spiritual wealth of the world. Yes, excellence does as we try and give you excellent music, um, but excellence does it as much as happiness, too. It encourages one about life generally. For those celebrating the Jewish New Year, maybe perhaps we can keep that top of mind as our resolution for the New Year. If you have a hard time with happiness, maybe just try encourage encouraging others about their life generally. And if Rabbi Elush is right, as I know he is, it will turn and redound to your favor and happiness as well. Folks, thank you for a wonderful week. Uh, until Monday, I'm Seth Liebson. He's David Dahl. Mr. Bill remains Mr. Bill. Terry remains in the Occident. God bless you all, and class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.